Super Nintendo game that particularly gripped uh, my heart. I, I had, uh, you know, of course, Mario uh, as a classic game, but I remember getting um, as a gift Star Fox. Uh, I don't know, is anybody familiar with Star Fox? Uh, maybe a few of you. Um, and when I first started playing Star Fox, I was excited about the missions, the challenges, you shoot stuff, you know, you go through the loops and you get points, and it's super exciting, but it was very disorienting. Uh, because when you play Star Fox and you try to fly, to go up, you have to go down. And to go down, down, you have to go up, right? The controls are inverted. Um, and uh, here recently in this past, uh, past I, think, I guess, year or so, we, uh, it was two years ago for Christmas, we got our kids a Nintendo Switch. And they have like an online uh, version where you can download the Super Nintendo games Uh, to play on your Switch, and I saw Star Fox, and I was super excited about seeing Star Fox. My kids did not share uh, the same excitement and enjoyment that I had when I played Star Fox, but the the kind of disoriented nature of flying where down is up and up is down reminds us a little bit of the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God and what it means to follow Jesus. And that's what our passage uh, is, is about uh, today in Mark 9, verses 30 through 50, as Jesus shows us that the way uh, to greatness is to be last of all and a servant of all. In other words, the way up is the way down. Uh, and so uh, we're, we're going to look at these passage, this passage, and it seems like kind of a staccato, like touch this topic, then this topic, then this topic, and they, they kind of seem disconnected, and yet uh, I want to suggest to us today that they actually are all kind of connected, and we actually see some thematic things uh, across these 20 verses that help connect them, but how I want to connect them uh, is, is for us to see uh, that what Jesus gives us in these verses, 30 through 50, are some discipleship lessons in light of the cross. Discipleship lessons in light of the cross. Another way to say it is they're lessons about following Jesus, because discipleship is really about following Jesus, what it means to follow him and to be his follower. And what we see is actually now the second prediction of Jesus' death and resurrection that's recorded in the Gospel of Mark. We looked at the first actually back on Easter in Mark 8, uh, 32 and 33, uh, and we saw Jesus said the same thing then that he says now. It's a reminder to us that Jesus' death and resurrection wasn't an accidental thing that happened as he went about living his life. It was actually the very purpose for which Jesus came. Uh, Jesus' followers did not make him a legend after uh, he died, but Jesus came with a specific mission to die. Um, And his mission was not just to die, but to rise again. And we see this in verses 30 through 32. So uh, the first lesson we have in Jesus recording his death and resurrection a second time is this, that we are to remember his death and resurrection. Uh, You know, the the whole nature of the second half of the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see one more prediction of Jesus' death and resurrection. And and you kind of see... Uh, that, that Mark, who's writing largely at the testimony of Peter, is kind of emphasizing something that as Jesus turned his face towards Jerusalem at the end of his life, you can tell that the disciples took, a, took notice of a markedly different focus for Jesus. As Jesus went to Jerusalem, 
what was on the top of Jesus' minds was preparing his followers for what would happen when he got put on the cross and after he rose from the dead. He was preparing them uh, for life after his departure, preparing them for what it would mean to follow him. And, and, and kind of predicting his death and his resurrection and following it up with these lessons on discipleship. And in Mark 8, we saw after his first prediction, the lesson was, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And what, what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Uh, you know, and, and what good is it to gain the whole world and yet forfeit your soul? Uh, but if you lose your life, you'll find it. Uh, and if you seek to save it, then you'll lose it. He gives us this picture of the cost of following Jesus. Well, here he's doing the same thing, and it reminds us that the path of following Jesus is shaped by the cross. The, the Christian life is defined by denying self and, and taking up our cross. And, uh, and we see that Jesus came as a suffering servant. Yes, he is king, but the kind of king he is is the kind of king who willingly lays down his life for us. He's a king who came as a suffering servant. And therefore, the, the discipleship lesson that stands out above all in these sections is that we can expect to be no less than servants ourselves if we follow a suffering servant. And that's the point that I think Jesus is making here. And we see in his prediction, it, the, the same thing happens in all three predictions. You have this structure of the Son of Man must suffer. And, and sometimes this is a little bit of an abbreviated uh, re- account. In the, the first one, it talks about being betrayed and handed over to the, uh, to the religious leaders in Israel. But here the emphasis is is that the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And I, I, I don't want to get too nerdy on you and, and talk about grammar, um, but the be delivered is a passive uh, statement. And some of you English majors know you shouldn't write in the passive, and every time I'm in Microsoft, it tells me to stop writing in the passive. My, I'm writing my dissertation right now. My major professor is going to hate me. I'm always in the passive. I'm like, look, if it was good enough for the Bible right? I can do it too. You know what I'm saying? Um, But I don't actually say that. I just usually change it uh, and try my best to say it in an active voice. But the reason it's important is not for grammar. The, The reason is theological. Jesus is going to be delivered. Who is delivering him? It's a divine passive. It's showing us that this is God's plan. Jesus going to the cross is God's plan from the beginning. So he will be delivered according to God's plan. It doesn't say that, but that's the implication. And this is what Peter says in 1 Peter, that he was delivered according to the foreknowledge of God. The divine plan of God was that Jesus would be delivered and to to be crucified. And it says, and when he is killed after three days, he will rise. But the disciples did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. They clearly knew Jesus had said this already. And there was a part of them that though they had seen Jesus raise the dead for them, the resurrection meant that at the end of time, there would be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. That's what, that's what Judaism would have taught based upon what we understand from the Old Testament. They couldn't fathom that in the middle of time, Jesus would rise and stay alive for all time. And that's what, that's what was confounding them. They couldn't, they couldn't imagine exactly how Jesus was going to do this. And yet in all of this, we're called to remember his death and his resurrection not as an anomaly, but as central to his plan. Not as an add-on to the, to the message of Christianity, but the heart of the message of Christianity. Not as a, um, and, uh, you know, kind of 
subset idea to how we live our life, but as an influencing, shaping idea to how we think about our life. That Jesus died for our sin on the cross in our place for our sin as our substitute, and he rose from the dead according to God's plan. And because that's true, we can have freedom from sin, from the power of sin. We can know that when we, when we do sin, we can have forgiveness. We can know that we have a spirit that enables us to, to follow after him, that helps us to walk through the hard and the suffering and the sorrow and the trials. That we can know that he's guiding us into the difficult decisions we must make. That we can know that he won't leave us or forsake us. I was just reading in Psalm 37 uh, this week, just reminded a word that I needed to hear. It says that the Lord will never forsake his saints. That's been true throughout all of time, before the, ro- the cross and the resurrection. That was true, and it was true based on God's character. But like we, we know it, know it now, because Jesus died and he rose. And if, if, if he did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also give us all things in Christ, Romans 8 says. And, and if neither death nor life or anything in this created order, and Paul goes through a whole list of things in Romans 8, he says that none of these things can separate us from the love of God. That's in Christ Jesus. That's why we can't forget the cross and the resurrection because it's the very foundation of our belief. It's the very foundation of our hope and of our life. But <clears throat> Jesus starts with his death and resurrection, but then he goes on to this point, and this is the second point that I want us to see, and it's that greatness is defined by humble service. This is the Star Fox point. The way up, Jesus says, is to go down. Jesus doesn't say that desiring greatness is necessarily bad. Jesus is here not squashing all ambition as if we should just kind of be doormats throughout life and have no desire, no ambition for anything. Instead, what he's doing is he is redefining it. And he's showing us that true greatness is being great in the things that matter to God, not in the things that that we think are great and defining greatness according to what we think is greatness. One commentator said the challenge is to be great in the things that matter to God. Nothing is greater in God's eyes than giving and no vocation affords the opportunity to give more than that of a servant. Jesus says to us <clears throat> that uh, we see Mark recounts um, that on their way up to Capernaum, Uh, They were going to a house, and it says Jesus was actually wanting uh, to go unnoticed so that he could talk with his disciples. Um, And when he gets to the house uh, and he's talking with his disciples, Jesus says, what were you discussing on the way? But they all didn't want to speak and kept silent because they knew uh, what they were talking about, and they were arguing over who was the greatest. And we'll actually see this come up again in Mark 10. Uh, This question doesn't go away. Uh, The disciples are very much concerned uh, with who gets pride of place next to Jesus in the kingdom. And so they've been arguing about who is the greatest. Um, and Jesus is going to, to kind of make an illustration. And he, uh, they're in a house, and apparently there was a child in the house, and he pulls that child aside, and he puts that child in his lap, and he says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. And then, I got the order wrong, it says, and then he took the child and put him in the midst of them, and he uh, uh, taking him into his arms, he said, whoever would receive one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So here Jesus redefines greatness. And I think there's two questions that are important for us to think about 
when we think about humble service uh, and, and how Jesus is here helping us see what truly is great in his eyes. And the question is, the two questions are this, what are you seeking? What is it that you want in your life? What are you really going for? Who do you want to be seen as great by? Who do you want to be, whose eyes do you want to be prominent in? And then secondly, what are the limits to your serving? You see, Jesus says he doesn't castigate them for being, uh, to arguing about who is the greatest necessarily, but he, he actually helps them to understand what true greatness is. He says it's actually not being first, but it's being last and being a servant. And then as he illustrates this point by taking the child and putting them in the midst of them, he's actually showing us that greatness is, is seen when you give of yourself not in order to get, but when there's nothing on the other side. Greatness is actually just giving of yourself out of love, not because you get something back. A child, um, there's no benefit or value, especially in, uh, in this context of serving a child. A child can do nothing for you. In fact, if you serve them, there's a chance that they'll want more. If you give them a snack, they'll want more snacks. You know, if you do something for them, they'll want more of that something. If you do something fun, they'll think if you, if you, you guys, some of you guys know this, you serve with kids, you, you pick them up in the air, you swing them around, they think it's fun, you know what's going to happen? Incessantly for the next 30 minutes, you're going to be asked to do the very same thing over and over and over and over again because they love it. They love what you're doing and yet you get nothing in return except more serving, more giving. And, and there's no benefit. They can give nothing back to you. Maybe you feel good about them liking you, but at the end of the day, their, their, their accolades get you nowhere in life. You know, you can't on your resume be like, hey, the kids at Treasure in Christ Church think I'm the bomb. You know, and, and your boss is going to be like, you know, I've been thinking about that raise, and because you serve the kids, I'm going to give you some raise. And yet Jesus... He's not just merely talking about children, but children that are in here, I want you to understand that Jesus, time and time again, shows how valuable you are in his eyes, how much he loves you, how much he cares about children. Children are never a burden or a hindrance to the ways and the purposes of the kingdom of God. He never sees them as getting in his way or, or distracting from his purpose, but instead he often pulls them aside to make a point. That a child, when you do something for a child, there's very little you get in return. And Jesus is actually making a point and saying, if you only serve in order to be seen, it's not, it's not really greatness in my eyes. If you, if you only serve those who can do something for you, it's not really greatness in my eyes. Some of you have been to like work conferences or uh, as a pastor, I, I go to conferences occasionally and... And I find this in myself, and maybe you can relate some situation in your life. You're there in a room of people, and you know who's important. It's easy to not pay attention to the people who aren't important. And to kind of, what, you, don't, you don't want to look desperate, right? So you're not going to trip all over yourself to get to the important people. But you're going to do your best to position yourself perhaps to be near the important person to talk to them and be seen by them. Now, hear me out. And if it's a networking conference, you got trying to get a job, like I understand the dynamics that are at play. I'm not telling you to don't be proactive and have a plan when you're doing, you know, something. But just, just think about what that says about our heart, though, just generally speaking. We can walk by people that we deem as being able to do nothing for us without, without thinking twice about not caring about them and not serving them. 
But we can, in our hearts and in our minds, do backflips to try to get seen by the people we think that are important. John Piper put it this way this week, and I've been chewing on this. He said, the measure of true, true greatness is to what degree has the impulse to self, self-exaltation been crucified? The measure of true greatness is to what degree the impulse of self-exaltation been crucified in our lives? How much heartfelt desire to serve others has there been? How much readiness and willingness to decrease while others increase? How much willingness to go low so that others could be lifted up? How much willingness to, uh, to serve and to give rather than to take and receive? How much has the impulse to self-exaltation died in our hearts? Do we have limits on, on how we and who we are willing to serve? Only sometimes willing to serve those who maybe could give us something in return. And I always caveat as I talk about serving. I say this often. You'll, you'll hear, me say, hear me say this about ministry and serving at TCC. I think ministry is best defined. I'm not talking just about a pastoral ministry. I'm talking about all the ministry that we do is best defined as, uh, as a sustainable sacrifice. All, all serving is sacrificial. Whether, whether you're serving in kids, you're serving at setup, there's a sacrifice, right? You've got to get up and get here at 7.30. You've got to uh, serve in kids. Maybe that feels stretched. You sing, and maybe, uh, maybe you are good in that ways, but it stretches you in other ways. Maybe uh, you're helping, uh, been asked to help with connections, and you like it, but yet you maybe would rather do something else. There's all kinds of ways in which we are stretched in our serving, um, and there's sacrifice in it. And yet it's important to say, and I'm not, I'm not saying that there perhaps is no limit at all ever to your serving. You just serve every time you're asked. That, that we believe in the importance of rest and being refreshed in Christ. And the way we schedule serving is we seek to be mindful uh, of how people serve because we believe that ministry is sustainable sacrifice. Sacrificial and yet uh, recognizing limits that God's given us and seeking to rest. And yet being willing to give of ourselves in serving others. Here I'm more concerned less about how often your name's in a slot on a serving schedule and more about what's going on in your heart when you serve. Do do you think of of your serving with a sense of, when I am serving, I'm actually most like Jesus? Do you think about that? When you serve others... In God's eyes, with a, with a humble heart, with a desire to, to love God and to, to love others, when you do that, you are great in the eyes of God. We, we sometimes see greatness from, uh, and, and affirmation and accolades from all sorts of people. And yet God is here saying the way to greatness is to give. To give in service to others. That's the measure of true, true greatness. How much does self-exaltation still rule in your heart? How much does it still rule in my heart? It's a searching question for us to all consider. Because Jesus here shows us that greatness is defined by humble service. <clears throat> but he goes on to say, and, and kind of somewhat of a, of a shift, which I, I can't help but, but laugh a little bit. You know, Jesus asked initially, uh, what were you guys talking about on the way? And everybody's like, you know, that you've seen that. I think it's uh, the Homer Simpson gif, you know, where he like backs up into the bushes. Um, 
That, that's kind of what, what they do. But then, like in John, like in a masterful shift of direction, John's like, hey, Jesus, uh, we saw some bit of casting out demons in your name, and we told them to stop. Uh, it's, it's almost like a hard shift, you know? John's like, okay, Jesus, thanks for that lesson. Uh, we're going to shift. I, I'm reading a little bit between the lines, but it, it's a, it seems like a shift of focus from what Jesus was talking about. But I think it's an important one because Jesus shows us that God's kingdom is bigger than my tribe. God's kingdom is bigger than my tribe. The disciples have this question that John offers, uh, and it's basically about someone that they saw who was casting out a demon in Jesus' name. And it says, I don't know when this happened, uh, but it says that they tried to stop him because he was not following us, John said. Now, the disciples' concern, on one hand, the sense of protectiveness against the name of Jesus is an understandable and a commendable one. But there was this sense of restrictiveness of anybody not with us doing things in your name, but they're not a part of our group. They didn't want to see any of that. They wanted to stop him. And I've heard uh, conjecture, just a thought. I was listening to one um, one pastor speak on this, and he said, I, I don't know if this is true, and, if, and of course I'm saying the same thing, I don't know if it's true, but wouldn't it be something if this unnamed person casting out demons was the man from Mark chapter 5, the man who had uh, demons himself, and Jesus heals him and sends him back to his hometown to tell everybody what Jesus had done for him. Uh, what, if, what if it was him that was going about doing this great work in Jesus' name? We don't know who it was, uh, but it's fun to think about who it could have been. But what we do know, and what I think is kind of implied, is that <clears throat> on the heels of Jesus coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, the disciples had difficulty casting out uh, a demon that was in a young boy. And here it says that this man is casting out demons apparently successfully in Jesus' name. How much is pride, how much is rivalry, jealousy underneath the disciples' concerns here? And and Jesus' response seems to kind of push back against their restrictiveness. He says, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be soon afterward able to speak evil of me. So if he does it in my name, he won't speak evil of me. And he goes on to say, the one who is not against us is for us. And then he says, and just consider the fact, if anyone would do any small gesture, like even give a cup of water to drink because you belong to me, belong to Christ, will by no means lose his reward. It's the first, one of the first times Jesus refers to himself as Christ on the heels of Peter declaring that he's the Messiah, declaring that he's Christ. Jesus uh, is here using the title uh, of, of himself. So Jesus says, don't stop the man. If he's not against us, he's for us. And this raises a question. Some of you might have another passage in your mind from the book of Matthew. Uh, Matthew chapter 12, verse 30. There, Jesus makes a different statement. And you have to ask yourself, how do these two statements fit together? Because there Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So here Jesus says, um, if he is not against us, he's for us. For the one who is not against us is for us. That's what verse 40 says. In Matthew 12, 30, he says, if you're um, not with me, you're against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters with me. Here's, here's the point. The disciples aren't concerned about this man doing it necessarily in Jesus' name. They're concerned 
that this man isn't a part of them. He's not with us, they say. And here's, here's the question that's important. The ultimate question is not whether this person is a part of our group, but is their allegiance to Jesus? Not are they a part of our group, but is their allegiance to Jesus? Alistair Begg says, The danger that the disciples must avoid is a narrow, self-focused exclusivism. The danger we must face and avoid is that same narrow, self-focused exclusivism in relation to other Christians. Now hear me out. To talk about inclusivity in our culture and not be clear on this would be malpractice on my part. Jesus is not in any way lessening the truthfulness of sin, lessening the truthfulness of judgment. If you doubt me, we will look at verses 42 through 47 in just a moment. Jesus is very clear on sin and judgment. He does not in any way lessen the significance of sin, the need for repentance, the truth of his death and his resurrection. We've already seen that in this passage. Here he's talking about how the disciples view another person doing ministry in Jesus' name. Here we're talking about how believers think about other believers. And it's possible to think, we do it right, they do it wrong. It's particularly particularly susceptible for a church like ours, a church plant that's new in a community, to think we do it right, and other people have been doing it wrong, and so we got this new thing that we're offering that's better than the other people. I want you to know that what we're doing is not better than Grace Bible Church, than Redeemer Church, than Mosaic Church, than I could list a whole host of other churches that are committed to preaching the gospel, that are committed to, uh, to exalting Christ and calling people to repentance and faith in Christ and to living holy lives in this world. What, what we can't do is look at ourselves and think our tribe has it right, everybody else has it wrong, and we'll look down our nose at them and think we're better than them because they're not part of our group. Jesus says you can't do that. The kingdom of God's bigger than you. My work is bigger than, than just your work. The twelve are essential to the mission of God. And yet the mission of God does not advance only by the twelve. Do you know that when persecution came upon the church in Acts chapter 8, it was unnamed Christians that went out from Jerusalem preaching the gospel, not the 12 apostles. The 12 apostles were essential eyewitnesses, authorities of the death and resurrection of Christ. They stayed in Jerusalem to to strengthen and to, to sustain a young and now persecuted church, but it was unnamed Christians who went and spread the gospel. We, we can't just look at it as our group alone matters and everyone else is wrong. So here's what, here's what we must say. Truth matters and convictions matter. That's important. That's why there are distinctions. You wonder, why are there so many churches? Yes, there are churches that split because of the color of the carpet and Johnny said this and Sue said that and we don't like them and they don't like us and so you got First Baptist and you got Second Baptist. You got you know this group and that group and at one time they were one group and, and there, there are very sad stories of church splits because of sin and unresolved conflict um, that happens and yet all that we can do is our best to stand with humble conviction on what we believe God's word means. 
There's a reason our church is a Baptist church, because we believe in believer's baptism as opposed to infant baptism. And my Presbyterian brothers and sisters at Knox Presbyterian, do they not love God because they believe in infant baptism? No, not at all. We, we can believe that we each don't hold the right position on that topic and yet be united in the gospel. <clears throat> is, is some other church that has a particular view on end times worse than us because uh, they don't agree with us? No, we can have a different view on those topics when we're clear on the gospel. Now, if I feel like a church has muddied the gospel, making the gospel unclear or inaccessible, then we we have problems that we should talk about. But as we seek to humbly stand on convictions, it's what's going to separate us from other churches, and yet we must check our prideful hearts that say that someone who doesn't do it like us is wrong. And instead, we can rejoice in our allegiance to Jesus and our unity in the gospel and believe that the kingdom of God is bigger than our tribe. It's a healthy thing to be a Christian who understands and believes the kingdom of God is just bigger than your group, and yet be convicted and believe that we hold to some truths as we've wrestled with scriptures that that are, as far as we can tell, faithful to what the scriptures teach. And when when we get to heaven, the most frequent expression I've heard that will be said is, oh, that's what you meant. That's how it worked out. There are things that we, we, may, we may have wrong, but we seek to, with, with clarity and conviction and humility, stand on those things that we believe that God teaches while holding to a unity in the gospel with other brothers and sisters in areas in which we differ. I think this issue uh, is, is kind of touched on here. There's obviously no denominations. Jesus is just getting at the very kernel principle here of not having a rivalry and a, uh, and a, a prideful uh, posture towards other believers who aren't a part of our group, but who are faithful to do things in Jesus' name. And as we apply that to our time, I'm seeking to help us to think well about how we can do that. But then he makes this transition from 41 to 42 that I think is somewhat interesting. He goes from saying, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward, saying uh, just the, simply treating, treating another one with, with the kindness of, of, of serving them a cup of water uh, is an act of service to Christ when they claim the name of Christ. Here he goes on in verse 42 through really 47 to talk about how sin is serious and judgment is real. This is why I say it's important for us to understand when I talk about uh, uh, fighting a narrow, self-focused exclusivism in relation to how we treat other people doing ministry in Jesus' name, I'm not talking about giving up the exclusivity of the gospel, which says that we are sinners condemned to God's judgment apart from faith in Christ. Because Jesus is abundantly clear that when it comes to the gospel, it's not a message, it's a message for everyone but it's an exclusive message of repentance and faith in Christ. And that distinction is massively important for us. And it's been massively important for the church throughout all of history. It's what makes the gospel message distinct. It says that this message is for all people. It does not matter who you are and what you believe. It does not matter how open you are to God, how closed you are to God. It doesn't matter your background, your upbringing, your conditioning and your environment. Whatever preconceived notions you may have, the gospel message is for everyone. And that gospel message 
tells us that sin is serious and that judgment is real. But Jesus starts in, in not in addressing sin within us, but in concern and care for, for others. And here's what we must do if we are to see that sin is serious and judgment is real. We must look out for one another. And then secondly, we must put our own sin to death with urgency and intentionality. Before I dig into those points, just consider how serious sin is. He says, if you cause another believer, again, he references these little ones, noting the illustration of the child early on, but again, here talking about any young believer, any, any believer, if you cause a believer to stumble into sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone hung around his neck and be thrown into the sea. A millstone would have been, been pulled by a donkey to be a part of the farming system. And, and, and one in which is, I mean, this isn't like, you know, you, you've seen some magicians get thrown in the water, handcuffed, and they uncuff themselves and swim up. This is the kind of thing that basically says it would be better to drown than to lead somebody else into sin, is what Jesus says. Sin is so serious that Jesus uses hyperbole to say, if your hand or your eye or your foot causes you to sin, it would be better to go into eternity with one less eye and one less foot and one less hand than to go head on into your sin and end up in hell. Jesus paints a picture of hell that is defined by unquenchable fire, of suffering, of the worm that does not die, the fire that is not quenched. It's ultimately throughout Scripture we see that hell is a place where the loving presence of God is absence and where suffering and judgment are eternal. And it's bodily and real. That truth is, is painted throughout the Scriptures. And if there's one topic that Jesus perhaps is excessively clear on, it's this one. Perhaps more than any other. Jesus does not shy away from warning us of the judgment to come and of the seriousness of sin. And when I read these things, I have to question sometimes even my own heart and the general attitude of Christian culture sometimes towards sin. It's so easy to, to just kind of be comfortable with sin around us. So easy to just kind of be a little dismissive of a little sin in us. And yet Jesus says a little bit of leaven. Leaven's the whole batch. A little bit of sin goes really far. I'm not saying that we go around and we correct everyone all the time. But are we at least broken over the sin that we see in the world? Are we sensitive to the sin that we see? Are we willing to... To, to turn away from certain things that may seem normal and okay for us to do, if it's in ourselves even tempting us towards sin, are we willing to say, I would do without that, rather than continually subjecting myself to temptation to sin in that way? That, that's when, when, we, when we look at Jesus' words, he, he, he's going to show us an urgency and intentionality that we must address. But first, he, he talks about looking out for one another. So I should not only care about my maturity and growth in Christ, but I should also care about the maturity and growth in Christ of other believers. Here Jesus is saying, if think about this, if you allow bitterness and resentment towards another believer to either actively 
seek to sin against them or to withhold yourself from helping them grow? Jesus is saying you could be causing them to stumble. I, I, I don't have the, it doesn't give us like the specifics of what exactly this means. And you're like, well, I might have sinned against my friend last week. Am I, should I jump in the ocean now or later? You know what you, you want me to wait? Or, I, 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 think, I think what it's saying is like examine yourself. Like I, I don't know if you caused somebody to sin. I don't know exactly how that's played out. I know that the severity of the punishment reveals how serious the failing to look out for our fellow believer is. So are we comfortable maintaining certain levels of resentment and bitterness towards other believers and withholding ourselves from seeking their good and perhaps even causing them to stumble into sin? Or are we sensitive to and desiring to move towards one another to help each other grow in Christ? So before Jesus ultimately is going to challenge us to look at ourselves, he says, look out for one another. And then he says, put your own sin to death with urgency and intentionality. Last week I talked about, I don't know, I can't remember when this was. A few weeks ago I think I talked about John Owen and the glory of Christ. Um, John Owen's had a lot of things to say about a lot of different topics. He talked about killing sin. And I particularly like the way he talked about killing sin. So I now have an array of John Owen quotes for you that help bring out the truth of the urgency and intentionality we must kill sin with. It's often said, I have a coffee mug actually with a John Owen quote on it that says, Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. But I think it's important to read the whole, the whole, the whole uh, quote because he says, You must always be at it, killing sin while you live. Do not take a day off from this work. Always be killing sin or sin will be killing you. He says, every time sin rises to tempt or entice, it always seeks to express itself in the extreme, meaning every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression if it could. Every unbelieving thought would be atheism if it could. It is like a grave. Sin is like a grave that is never satisfied. So he says, rise mightily against the first sign of sin. Do not allow it to gain the smallest ground. That's the mindset that Jesus gives when he says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. He's not telling you to cut. No one go from here. Hear me. Do not go from here and cut off your hand, foot, or eye, all right? Uh, It's actually been done by one church father who plucked out his eye because of his battle with lust. Don't do that. But you might need to get rid of some stuff in your life. You might need to put some limits up. You might need to have some conversations. You You might need to take aggressive, intentional measures to put yourself in situations where you are not captive to temptation to sin. And know this, know this. As you seek to remove yourself from the temptation to sin, the secret to fighting sin is not just removing temptation. The secret is having a greater affection and love for Christ than the stuff we used to pursue. That's the call. Here Jesus says, be urgent, be intentional. Elsewhere, the scriptures continually show us the way to fight sin is ultimately by clinging to the promises of God. The way to fight sin is by seeing and believing that Jesus is better. So we have to take it seriously. We have to respond to it urgently. And Jesus here shows us and warns us in the process of following him, 
there are real dangers. There are, there are real temptations to sin. And in fact, one of the greatest challenges sometimes of following Christ, look to your left, look to your right, it's us. Sometimes we can get in the way and challenge each other in following Christ. Some of you might have looked at your spouse and not wanted to look at your spouse. Some of you looked at your neighbor and be like, I don't know, you're not that hard, I like you. You But the the, the challenge is sometimes community is hard. And in fact, we know this because of verses 49 through 50. And this is the last point. Our life together either displays or distorts the gospel to a watching world. Look at what Jesus says. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will it make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves, he says. And be at peace with one another. Everyone will be salted with fire. That's a strange statement. Um, and, and the background to it, if you want to write down Leviticus 2, verse 13. In the Old Testament, Jesus, God gave instructions for how to make sacrifices. And often, salt was added to the sacrifice. Uh, and it speaks to the refining process, I think, that every believer undergoes in their sanctification or their growth in Christ. He's saying that all of us are going to face trials. All of us are going to be refined in this process. And that's why he says salt is good and everyone will be salted. It reminds me of the hymn um, that speaks to how God uses the trials and suffering to refine us. And how firm a foundation. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, his grace all sufficient will be your supply. For he will be with you. Notice what it says. You may have sung this and not thought about it. In your troubles to bless you and to sanctify you even through your deepest distress. That's, that's what the hymn is saying. Through your deepest distress, God is working to sanctify you. He will be with you even in your troubles to bless you. Talk about the way up is down, the inverted nature of the kingdom of God, that seems crazy. And yet that's the refining process. And, and, and God, I, C.S. Lewis, I, I won't quote the whole thing, he talks about how God exploits evil and suffering and trials for his redemptive purposes to produce a complex good that we, that we must uh, accept and submit to that, that he's working in our lives. I think that's, that's kind of the picture when he's talking about this suffering and this uh, process of refinement in light of his death that's to come, in light of his resurrection. And here he's saying that there is a danger that we neglect that process and lose our saltiness. Now, some of, some of the chemistry folks might say, now hold on one minute, salt is a stable compound. It does not lose its saltiness. Well, in the region of the Dead Sea, uh, salt was often mixed in with a number of other things and that eventually it just kind of corroded and became worthless and was just thrown out on the, on the path. And so while it has, salt has the ability to preserve and, um, and these type of, of characteristics, once it loses saltiness, it's not good for anything. And so he says we lose our saltiness when we fail to listen to Jesus' words and warnings, when we don't listen to him. We fail, when we fail to apply the gospel, in essence, to our hearts, we lose our saltiness. And here's how it connects to community, because at the end of this all, he says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. I don't think that's just merely an add-on. I think that's part of the, the characteristic of how we keep our saltiness. And I, I love this quote from Alistair Begg in 
forgive me for it being a longer one, but sometimes when you found, find something that's said better than you can say, it's just better to say what they said. Because he says this, if the gospel is the saltiness of the Christian life, it is the gospel which unites one Christian with another. Therefore, it is selfish preoccupations with things that are unrelated to the gospel which make Christians fight with one another. And when Christians fight with one another, we lose the opportunity to be salt in a community that is consumed with fighting with each other. We lose the opportunity to fulfill what Jesus says elsewhere, and this is in the Gospel of John 13.35, by this will all men know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. See, the, 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 the picture of community, of the relationships of believers, either speaks to the truthfulness of the Gospel or it distorts the Gospel by the way we treat one another, by our relationships with one another. Rather, haggling over who is the greatest, what if our, what if our community was defined by an eagerness to outserve one another? There's really two options in following Christ and, and cultivating community as Jesus talks about here. Selfish preoccupations or humble service. What grips our heart? Selfish preoccupations neglect the gospel Humble service is fueled and strengthened by the gospel. I want humble service. But Lord, help me because sometimes it's easy for selfish preoccupations to grip my heart. Let's pray that God would help us to be these people. And I, I want to encourage you as you hear Jesus' invitation, these lessons on discipleship are not lessons for you to live up to so that God will accept you. The, the journey of following Christ begins with surrender, begins with acknowledging our sin and trusting in Him. And if you've acknowledged your sin, repented of your sin and trusted in Him, then know that He will give us what we need to keep His commands, to follow Him on this journey of discipleship. So I don't know where you're at today. Maybe you need to begin at the beginning, confessing your sins and trusting in Christ. Maybe you need to be renewed in your commitment of the pursuit of following him, putting to death selfish preoccupations and, and taking on the identity of a humble servant just like Christ. Wherever we're at, let's respond to him today. Let me pray.